Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue working through the book of Matthew. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 817. I want to start a little differently normally this morning. I want to start by reading just another passage um, that is pretty distinct from our passage this morning, but I'll tell you why in a second. So just bear with me. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I think it was this particular passage that I had an interaction in a Bible study with someone that I want to tell you about because I think it's a helpful story. As you heard in that passage, it's one of these difficult passages that talks about election and predestination and God's choosing of us in our salvation. And I think most Christians today, and specifically our denomination, Statement of Faith does a good job of understanding that these statements are a cause of disagreement between true Christians in the details of how exactly this works in our everyday lives and the place of free will and human responsibility. And normally when I preach or teach on a text like this, it's normally a good time of discussion, and it's one of my responsibilities as a pastor and teacher to foster good conversation, conversation that is more light than heat. But let me tell you about a time where that didn't happen. We were talking about this, and the gentleman in the group said, well, I just can't believe that. And I said, well, that's interesting. What do you mean you can't believe that? And I said to him, is it that you don't understand how this exactly works, or you've just never heard of it before? But what it came to happen with him was that he said, no, I just can't believe that. And so I'm like, okay, a second refusal. Let me try something else. Hey, would you like to get together outside of the class and you and I, we can sit down and we can talk about it? I'll even bring coffee. But then he did something that doesn't normally happen, and that is he refused again. So not only was he saying, I can't believe this, I can't meet with you to even talk about it. So I tried one more time. I said, well, the word choose, it's right there. And it doesn't have to mean everything, but it's got to mean something. And he would not budge, and he said, I just can't believe it. And so, instead of wrestling with him for another five minutes and getting nowhere, I simply dropped it and moved on with the rest of the group. 
It's that refusal and the doubling down that I want to use to help us understand our text today. It was trying to have a conversation with someone that doesn't even want to attempt a conversation. Again, as I've said, there are debates about the specifics of the different parts of our theology. But there was a hardness of heart with this particular gentleman that I think is going to help us understand where Jesus is in our story today. See, last week we talked about how the opponents of Jesus appeared irrational. Again, they took what he said and wouldn't even deal with his argument. But I think there's a different overlapping category that's at the center of our text today that is often seen in irrationality. And that is a pure hardness of heart. And so in the three movements of our passage today, we're going to see the Pharisees time and time again refuse to believe. And there's going to be a progression. So first, they're going to refuse to believe their own eyes, what's in front of them, what they see. And secondly, they're going to refuse to believe any logic that Jesus presents to them. Jesus is going to present them with facts and logic. And they refuse to believe that. And then thirdly, it's going to culminate in Jesus warning them not to refuse the Holy Spirit himself. So let's look at the first part of the text, Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 22. And we're going to see not believing your own eyes. Follow along as I read. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So this part of the story begins with a quick summary of a whole story of a healing of Jesus. So there is a demon-oppressed man who is also blind and mute, and someone brings him to Jesus and Jesus heals the man. And we've seen this type of story before, and the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus healing. And the crowd's response around Jesus is amazement. And in seeing this miracle, they have this question, can this be the son of David? This is another way of asking if Jesus is God's promised Savior. Throughout the Old Testament, we see promises again and again that the promised Savior would come from David's family. Just as an example, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's speaking to David, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But as we've also seen before, the healing ministry of Jesus was again evidence that he was the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. 
So again, Isaiah chapter 35, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So the healing of the blind and mute man directly connects to Isaiah 35 in that the promised Savior would heal those people. Now, if you remember, we looked at that same passage when Jesus was answering John the Baptist's disciples, questioning whether or not he was the promised Savior. The promised Savior was going to do miracles, and here Jesus is doing miracles. Therefore, it is a logical question, is he the promised Savior? Now, they are not convinced here. They're not making a declaration that he is. But it should be at least seen as positive that they are at least considering it in light of the evidence. Again, something they have seen with their very eyes. Let's contrast this with the response of the Pharisees. Look at verse 24. So they see Jesus miraculously healing a man, and what is their conclusion? It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The people and the Pharisees see the same thing. Also note, the Pharisees are not questioning whether or not the man has been healed. The people look at the evidence and ask if Jesus is the promised Savior. The Pharisees look at the evidence and declare, this guy works for Satan. Now again, it's a crazy conclusion. And we'll get more about this in the next part of the passage, where Jesus is going to attack the logic of their conclusion. But even just think about this. Why does Satan all of a sudden want to heal people? So again, they see a healing, they see a good thing, and they go, you know what? Satan. Also, no excitement that the guy gets healed. And again, we've seen that before. Again, there's something wrong in your heart if you see someone get healed and your response is to sort of thank Satan and not be happy about it. Many times in the Bible, God's, the opponents of Jesus the opponents of God's work through Christ are presented as being irrational. But in one sense, that is a symptom of another category the Bible uses, and that is a hardness of heart. One of the best places for this is Hebrews chapter 3, which is quoting Psalm 95. By the way, this is also connected to rest, which connects to earlier in the passage where we've been. But let me read you from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The Pharisees are in danger of falling into the same trap as the wilderness generation even though they had just seen God's work 
with their very eyes. They refuse to even consider whether or not Jesus is the promised Messiah. Again, you see the hardness of our heart in that they see a healing miracle and give credit to Satan. Now we'll come back to this idea because in one sense this is very much like Psalm 95, a warning passage. The tone of our passage today in calling out the Pharisees is calling us, is warning us not to harden our hearts, not to deny what is clear and right in front of our eyes. It's a word, wonderful word picture of a person who refuses to repent and turn to faith in Jesus no matter what is presented to them. And again, it's going to come in these three phases because it's going to come again and again. Jesus is, in, in, he doesn't let them just refuse once, right? There, there's a bit of the grace of God here. He's like, okay, you won't believe the miracle? Well, in the second part, let me, let me destroy your argument with facts and logic here. So let's turn to that in verses 25 to 30, beginning in verse 25 to 28. So we see not believing your own eyes, but now we see not believing logic. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Notice Matthew begins this paragraph saying that Jesus knew their thoughts. That means their earlier comment about Jesus being empowered by Satan may not have necessarily been said out loud or in public. I do want you to imagine that Jesus is speaking in a way that He knows what you're thinking and how they felt sort of caught red-handed in that moment. But again, Jesus is attacking the logic of their claim that he gets his power from Satan. Not only is it wrong to say that Jesus healed by the power of Satan, it just doesn't make any sense. So the end of verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You know, for us in our context, it's helpful to remember that this passage was quoted by Abraham Lincoln as he was talking about the impending civil war of our country. In a speech delivered in 1858, he warned of coming division. And it makes sense. How can a country stay strong if it fights against itself. Again, there's just a sense of just plain logic and reason here. And not only is that a problem, we know there were Jewish exorcists at the time of Jesus. So here the phrase, your sons, refers to the Jewish people broadly. We see this as an example in Acts 19 where there are people casting out demons. 
So Jesus adds to the Pharisees, okay, you've got these people who are casting out demons. Are they empowered by Satan too? And if they acted out of God's power, the only way to free someone from demon oppression, Jesus warns the Pharisees that those who have not rejected God will be your judges. But then Jesus makes the opposite, more positive argument. Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is not logical that Jesus is empowered by Satan because the casting out of demons is a defeat against Satan, then they should at least consider that Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit of God. And if that is true, then they need to accept that Jesus is the promised Savior. It's the only logical conclusion. Now, Jesus will come back to this underlying fact that when they reject him, they are actually rejecting the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in a little bit. But before we get there, Jesus is going to use another word picture to again warn them and call them to repentance and faith. Look at 29 and 30. So just as it is illogical that Satan would empower defeats against Satan, here again, just using plain reason, we see in verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed you may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We know from Jewish historical writing around the time of Jesus that there was an expectation of the binding of Satan when the promised Savior appeared. We see this language in the Bible in a place like Revelation chapter 20. This is probably behind this word picture of Jesus being a thief who binds up the strong man. Now it's also, we should note, an interesting metaphor of Jesus being compared to a thief But as one author expresses, it is an expression of the kingdom of heaven forcefully advancing. Jesus is fighting a victorious battle against the powers of this world. Jesus is telling them that his healing of the demon-oppressed man is an expression of him bringing about the kingdom of God. And this culminates in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Since Jesus is the promised Savior, since he is the one who is bringing about the kingdom of God, you do not want to be against him. As one author about this writes, in our relationship to Jesus, there can be no neutrality. Because either you think he's empowered by God or he is empowered by Satan. It is only through Jesus that we are saved. And to not be with Jesus is to be against him. Now you might have a question here of, didn't Jesus say the opposite thing in another part of the Gospels? And you're sort of right. 
Let me deal with that. This is from Luke chapter 9. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, again, Jesus said both things. But what I think is important, the distinction here of why they do not contradict, is that the person is described as casting out demons in Jesus' name. They are not acting in a way that rejects Jesus. That is what is in light in our text. The one who is not with Jesus is the one who has rejected him. And you cannot reject Jesus and be saved. Again, we need to understand the warning tone of this passage. Do not harden your heart to Jesus. Do not reject Jesus. The Pharisees were given evidence that they could see with their own eyes, and they rejected him. And the Pharisees were confronted by Jesus with the logic and reasoning of what they were saying, and they still rejected him. We see the terrible consequences of a hardness of heart to Jesus. And then in a final warning in this part of the passage, Jesus is going to say, you've rejected what you've seen. You've rejected the reasoning of what you're saying. But do not harden your hearts against the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 31 to 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I want to take some time here. We're talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this has a history of confusion about what it means. And I want to take some time to understand uh, how to best understand this here. Because I thought every sin can be forgiven. Why does Jesus say this won't be forgiven? On a broad level, I want you to see blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as analogous to a refusal to believe, a persistent rejection of Jesus. Again, I think the larger context of the passage helps us to see this. Not believing what your eyes show you, not believing logic, and here, not believing the Holy Spirit. Don't refuse the Holy Spirit. Now again, one of the difficulties here is Well, why is one able to be forgiven for speaking a word against the Son of Man, that is, Jesus? One of the commentators is helpful here, where he says, The first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel, but there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that this is exactly what one is doing thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, 
even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcism than that. Again, keeping it into the context of they see a miracle, there is only one right conclusion to a miracle, and that is it is empowered by God. There's a concern out there that you can accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit and not able to be forgiven. But again, that's not what is in view here because we see time and time again, Jesus points them to the right conclusion that he is the promised Savior. Another author makes the point this way, Given the sweep of biblical testimony, I believe Jesus was speaking of a settled attitude of belief that rejects Jesus whose ministry is spirit-impelled. I say settled because in Mark 3, a similar passage, when Jesus warns the teachers of the law about the sin, he also reasons with them. Again, it seems good to understand the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit as persistent, willful rejection of the Holy Spirit, which leads to judgment. But I also want to bring up a a previous point that I've made about warning passages. The warning demonstrates that there is time to repent. Jesus gives the warning so that people may repent. Repent of your rejection of Jesus and place your faith in him as the promised Savior. Do not harden your hearts like the people in this story. They had every advantage of seeing the miracles with their own eyes. They had every advantage of hearing the actual words of Jesus to them rebutting their argument. And yet they still persisted in their unbelief. Do not reject Jesus. Respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and place your personal trust in Him. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, do not harden your heart to Jesus and His Word. This is a warning passage, and we should take it seriously. And it's a story of the immense capacity of the human heart to reject Jesus. The human heart has an amazing ability to refuse to believe. These people in this story had every advantage, and they still rejected Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, do not harden your heart to the good news of Jesus died and resurrected, but rather repent of your sins and place your faith in him and be saved. And if you are a believer in Jesus, do not harden your heart to the word of God, which instructs us how to live as a follower of Jesus. You know, I've said before, our problem is not that we don't necessarily know what's in the Bible. We're some of the most educated Christians who have ever lived Where is the difficulty actually doing it? And there's a hardness of heart there to to know what we should do and not to do it. 
This is not just about warning the Pharisees. It is warning all of us to have a soft heart to Jesus and His words. And secondly, I want to word the conclusion this way. Praise be to the God who gives us new hearts. Again, the hardness of the human heart is on display in this passage. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When we repent, God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, a heart of faith. When we place our faith in Christ, we receive new hearts that love our Savior. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ and those who have a new heart, pray for God to remove the heart of the person you know who has rejected Him. Pray for your friends and your family and your neighbors that God would remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That when we share the good news of Jesus with them, they would not persist in their rejection of Him, but that they would gladly hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this warning passage you've given us today. That we would turn away from unbelief. That we would not persist in irrational rejection of you. That we would see your miracles. That we would understand your reasoning. And that we would see in this passage that the Holy Spirit is calling us to faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That we would not resist the Spirit, but that through the Spirit we would have new life. God, we pray for those who have rejected you so far. We pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members. We pray that you would give them a heart of flesh and that we would be ready for that opportunity to call them to faith, to call them to reject their rejection and that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.